This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, there are a couple of names that, uh, of course, uh, just send chills up your spine. Uh, in court uh, today to, uh, of course, be sentenced in the murder of uh, Toronto woman Laura Babcock. Uh, to give us an update on this and what's happening, uh, Alex Pearson is with, with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, heard weeknights right here on CHML, as well, of course, uh, was extensive and covered the uh, Tim Bosma case for us uh, at that time. Alex is with us now. Alex, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So give us a bit of an update. What is happening now? I understand this has been delayed and in, in adjourned for another couple of weeks. No. Well, the Crown has put their case forward as, as what they would want. They argued this morning that they want consecutive sentences, went through those arguments, because that's what you do at a sentence hearing is you hear arguments. I mean, they get 25 years, period. That's what life is in this country. It's just when do they start serving um, you know, the sentence for Laura Babcock. Should that be at the same time as this sentence, or should it be um, done in the new way that the Harper government brought in, which is serve the Tim Bosma sentence first and then this, which I think is the best way to go. So uh, um, let's clarify this a bit, Alex. So uh, yeah. obviously uh, consecutive sentences, uh, uh, one right after the other, as opposed to two together. What this yeah. does affect, especially when you've got multiple multiple murders involved, obviously these people are going to be behind bars for a long time, but this affects, or does it affect, uh, parole hearings and this sort of thing? Is that where the difference is here? There is, yeah. I mean, it just, you know... It, it delays the parole hearing, does it not? Well, I mean, it, what it means is that, you know, the Babcock family don't have to be going through this, you know, when, when the day comes up on the 25 years, they don't have to start going through the process right. of right. denying and pleading for these people never to get out. Mm. So that's, you know, that's why. I, look, in this country, I think a lot of people are very frustrated that life doesn't actually mean life. Mm. It's 25 years, and then you have the eligib- eligibility for parole. These guys are never going to see the light of day again. Assuming that their appeals, which are both underway, or sorry, are before the courts, um, you know, they're not going to get out and they're not going to get their cases, I, I don't think, overturned. Having said that, you know, we hear often, you hear it with the French and the Mahati families, when they have to go through terrible processes with the parole boards of having to beg. And this would then just stave off that for a little while. Yeah, and I guess there's a perfect example uh, with the French and Mahaffey families where even though Bernardo, again, will not see the light of day, they still have to jump through these hoops if he if he wants to go through the process and, and apply. Yeah. Yep, because it's not actually, people forget, um, you know, you get that case that just happened in Saskatchewan that's really high profile and you get these cases with Millard and Smitch and, and or, or Tim Bosman, Laura Babcock, it's not about them. It's not about the victim. It's about making sure that the rights of the accused are protected and that they get a fair trial. It's frustrating, I know, for a lot of people who just think that's not how it should work, but it is how it works. In well, country. and many have said that, Alex. Many have yep. said, you know, why even bother going through the next trial uh, to to uh, find the murder of his father, if that is the case? And why do that? Why are they doing that? Because if the Crown thinks it has enough to get a conviction... Um, then justice will have been served for Wayne Millard, who, by the way, deserves the very same kind of justice that Laura Babcock and Tim Bosma got. Um, this is, of course, Della Millard's father, and he died under suspicious circumstances. It was initially yeah. ruled a, a suicide by shotgun. But if the Crown has enough to convict him, they should absolutely. We just don't throw out cases in this country because they're a bother to the public. Yeah. That's not how. Or because they, they cost too. Or because they cost too yeah. much, it might seem redundant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, we don't worry about costs. 
clearly in the province of Ontario. But, <laughs> it, but they, it, it, we should not be running court cases on, you know, yeah. budget. No, you're absolutely you know, right. That's just not yeah. how it goes. Yeah, and we shouldn't be flip about it. Um, one thing I found fascinating was the jury got to recommend what they thought the judge should do when awarding a sentence here. Are handing Say down again. a sentence. Uh, it's well, interesting that the jurors yeah. had yep. a say in what they thought the judge should do in handing down yep. a sentence. They always get. They they generally do get a say of mm-hmm. what does the jury think, or you know, and in this case, they overwhelmingly all twelve of them said for Del Millard that he should get um, you know consecutive. And and in the ju- ruling of Smith, it was I think five of them, uh, half of the jury right. said you know consecutive. The other ones went the other way. But again. Um, the judge will take that into consideration, but it will not drive his decision-making, and he will treat both of these accused and now convicted separately. So um, it'll be interesting to see how he views this. He's going to hear the case of the defense this afternoon. I mean, they would probably be into that section right now. But the Crown has wrapped up. The judge has already said, look, I'm going to take a week or two to think about this, and then make the decision. Are you surprised? I I'm not a judge because it would take me 14 seconds. I'd like, yeah. yeah really cavil down for Alex. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what, um, uh, are you surprised that half the jurors decided that, uh, although they all decided that uh, it would be good for um, uh, Millard, they didn't think the same with Smith. Are you surprised that? Because clearly they believe no. that, that the two people are not equal here. No, it doesn't surprise me. But, um, you know, look, Smith always played himself as being the quiet guy who... He didn't know what was going on. He was just there, and oh my God, you know, Della Millard pulled out a gun, and then oh my God, I was just I got caught up in this, and I was scared. He's just a BS artist, and he is painted, and he always has painted himself as the victim, just as Millard has. But the difference in Millard and Smith is fascinating to watch because when it comes to Della Millard, you can tell he is so emotive in his expressions that you know when he's irritated, you know when he's upset, you know when he's pissed off. Smith is a rock. You mm. cannot read his body language. He's quite uh, good at playing like the soft, like I, I just wasn't there. His hair's all grown out now. He's not quite the gangsta thug that he used to yeah. portray. Um, so it's interesting to watch. So he would, I think, he can and has the ability to manipulate, I think, people in the courtroom to kind of believe that, yeah, he did it, but I don't think he really wanted to. But make no mistake, he was there, wanted to be a part of it, and was quite quite uh, enjoying uh, the profits of, of his crime as they escalated. No bizarre, question. bizarre. Yep. Um, what uh, now? I understand the Bosma family was there today. Yeah, they would have gone. They they went once during the trial. They didn't want to take over the trial as would have happened, um, but they did go uh, to show their support. They're there as well today. Um, the Babcock family. You know, we got to remember it's Laura's birthday today. She I know, twenty nine, and yeah. we don't talk about Laura Babcock because. Mm. To speak about Laura Babcock, I think, is difficult for for people because she was never tangible to anybody. Mm. You know, she was a a girl going through a lot of trouble. She was, you know, had some issues with mental illness. She was going through a rebellious stage. She's going going through a bit of the bad girl phase of life. So I think it's easy for people to kind of say, well, what do you expect? You know, you weren't behaving to society norms. You were in the sex trade work. I look at Laura Babcock and I feel this great deal of empathy because no one ever really took it seriously that she had disappeared. No one listened to her boyfriend, Sean, when he went to the police and said, look, you've got to look at these cases. She was kind of the forgotten person, but I think it's really important to understand that she is someone's daughter. And regardless of the mistakes she may have made in life, she didn't get a chance 
yeah. at 23 to make the right decision to save herself. She yeah. got swept up in something that I don't even think anybody could have understood. And certainly her parents who read out to victim impact statements today, look, that this is what they have to live with today. This is what they're doing on her birthday today. Yeah, it's sad. She somehow slipped through the cracks, and until, yep. you know, the breaks in the Bosma case, uh, her case yep. was uh, pretty much uh, unknown. Um, in regard to uh, what happens next, uh, the other the other case is supposed to start in April, and, April we, un- and we understand that uh, Dylan Millard now has back one of his original lawyers for this. Raven Pillay. Yep, Raven Pillay was uh, one of two lawyers that represented him in the Tim Bosma case. He was the quieter of the two lawyers, um, very matter-of-fact. I, you know, he, he is also part of his sentence hearing today. So he will take him into this next. I don't know if he's covered by legal aid. We have not been told how it is that Della Millard is all of a sudden able to afford this um, defense. But he will take his father's, uh, he will take him into his father's trial, which as I understand, and I will be covering that chapter of this, um, this triology, shall we call it, um, but it'll be interesting because I understand there is new information that is said to be coming out. What that is? I cannot say it because I do not know. Wow, that is—it's uh, incredible to believe when you think about it. Um, as and, the, and this would put him—if he's convicted of he's it, a then he killer. becomes a serial killer. Uh, the consecutive sentences—we understand they're being challenged. Is this the first major time that these have been used? I guess from what I—I I, I guess it is. And uh, um, what do you think the change? Well, it's cha- not, the first, it's, it's it's definitely not? new territory, and you're going to put me on the spot. I would have to look up different cases that right. have gone through this because I don't think we've actually had. Since this law came into effect, I can't think of another case that had someone back-to-back um, being convicted. I could be wrong, but it is, it is very new territory for any judge to have to go through this. I, there is, a, as I understand, another case that they will use kind of as precedent-sending, but I, I right. can't discuss that as much as I'd like to just because I don't have a, a case that I can refer to. But it is, as a whole, new territory for any judge in this country to be using this uh, standard. And I, I welcome the change. I think it's uh, time that we had this. I think for victims' families, yeah. certainly who are not considered in this process, I think it does help them. I mean, would you not want, if we could somehow, to spare the Bosmas and the Babcocks mm-hmm. the, the, the agony of having to go and try to fight further for any more justice? It just seems inhumane. Well, and exactly. I mean, and, and for these criminals, it, you know, it's not like they're getting out. It's not a case of that. It's just have to, you know, having the family jump through these hoops all the time. And, and yep. you know, you think of even the uh, Mahaffey and French family. Yep. I mean, that, that's over 25 years ago that that's happening. It is, and they're forgotten. Yeah, I mean, yeah. once those cameras go off, the courtroom shut down, and everyone goes home, these families are the forgotten ones. And, yeah. and everyone else moves on with their life. But imagine if you can, Scott, the pain yeah. of what they go through. Um, and, and while the Bosmos, you know, they're just a force to be reckoned with, just I have so much respect for them mm. and compassion because that's who they are. They are the most compassionate group. They've taken, Charlene Bosma has taken her tragedy and is now helping others go through this system, whether it's bringing warm meals to the courtroom, helping pay parking, those kinds of things. They have turned this into their help moving forward, and I don't expect anything less of them. But I think people have to understand just how unbelievably daunting and, and unforgiving it is for those who really go through this because they don't no one no one fights yeah. for them and you know when you think about it if, if, if this law this new law and, and the whole sentencing thing if these two yep. don't qualify for that who does well no kidding i mean, I mean where no do you, kidding where do you go from here right you, you no kidding it, that would be it would be quite remarkable for the judge to turn around and say well, yeah because well, this is a thrill kill 
I mean, people say, like, what were they doing and why is this case so unique? Well, because it was a thrill kill. And in Canada, that's almost unheard of. It's just that rare that there was really no motive at play other than they could. So they did. And the more they did it, the more they seemed to like it. That's a thrill kill. We don't hear about that very often. Usually there's a... um, a motive it could be money and and that could have come into play as motive if it's asked in the in the Wayne Millard trial because again having Wayne Millard's estate would have given Mr. Della Millard a lot of freedom but again this is a unique case because of that generally speaking you could have a case uh, where love is the motive of cross uh, you know a cross lover or right. uh, some anger but this is different uh, do you think we're going to find out anything more about this person that we don't already know which who Millard with this uh, with this final um, with this final trial will it be as you know I will it be think, as infamous yeah, as I, the first couple? Well, I think while we're talking about and I'll go back to this thrill killing with Laura Babcock and Tim Bosma, I think we will maybe get to the crux of what was going on, yeah. and that is you know how is it that a kid who had everything handed to him on a silver platter decided you know you know is alleged to have killed his father. He got the estate, of course, when his father passed away. That's now been frozen by a judge in in light of the conviction in Tim Bosma. But was he driven by money? I think we'll start to to learn what it is exactly, um, A, how much money was he getting? Like, how much was that estate worth? What was driving him? And what kind of relationship did they have? Was Wayne Millard looking to cut him off? Hmm. Is that what maybe put into motion... Uh, any of this. So those are the questions I think that are, are very relevant. What is it about the Wayne Millard death that plays into possibly, you know, the the future of what they had planned? Another angle too. Another angle yep. too, Alex is where's the mother in all of this? And we've talked about this before. Yeah. We certainly With didn't Waldo. hear. Yeah, we did not hear Someone. anything from her during the the second, first, or second trial for that matter. Nope. Uh, and now, as now as we get into. Uh, the internal workings of this family, which I'm guessing we will as soon as this third case yep. starts, how will they? How will this case go on without her on the stand? I mean, we'll have to hear from her, will we not? Do you think? I would think that we will uh, hear from her. Um, we certainly, in in the two cases, heard from an uncle, Robert Burns, and he was right. always one of the most fascinated, fascinating people that I had heard from because the disdain that he had for Della Millard, who he kind of took in and was a mentor as a younger kid. But the stuff that he unleashed on the stand, to the point where in both cases the judge had to say, hey, stop, answer mm-hmm. the questions. But he hated Della Millard so much because Dellen used him as an excuse. Remember that yeah. he was going into business with his uncle who had a veterinarian yeah. to buy this eliminator to start pet cremation services. He will likely get on the stand to, to talk about it, but Madeline Burns has never been seen. And... Mm-hmm. It's quite staggering that a mother would not show up even just to be there for the day that yeah. a, a conviction or a verdict is delivered. But she is also a fascinating story. Alex Pearson has been with us, of course, uh, host of On Point with Alex Pearson on the Global News Radio Network. You can hear tonight right here on CHML. Want to plug the big show, Alex? Who's tonight? Do we know? Yeah, we're going to examine that whole ruling that came down on Friday night in a Saskatchewan courtroom where a white jury had you know, acquitted a white man of killing an Indigenous man. It is a fascinating case. It is a complex case. But more to the point of what the Prime Minister and the Justice Minister said, and they should not have, and they should be. Uh, it's just very dangerous what they did. On Point with Alex Pearson tonight on CHML. Thanks, Alex, as always. Have a good show tonight. My pleasure. My pleasure. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Have North and South Korea been getting along amicably for the Olympics? Or could we see some cooling, or can we see some cooling of tensions? Uh, U.S. President, uh, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, uh, there, uh, stone face for most of it, and then commenting as he's leaving North Korea when they're ready to talk, we will talk. But if we wasted the opportunity while everyone was sitting so close together, but not really looking back and having a chat. Uh, let's bring in Donald Baker, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. Uh, he is with us now. Donald, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Always good to talk with you, Scott. So what are your thoughts, Donald? Uh, obviously, uh, before the games, before the opening ceremonies, lots of uh, demonstration, lots of tensions, uh, lots of tension, rather, that the North Koreans are coming in and crashing South Korea's party. Uh, is that letting up a lot, or at any, at all, rather? And is this an opportunity here? I'm not sure how much of an opportunity it is, because the basic problem remains. North Korea says they will never give up their nukes. And the United States says they will not talk to North Korea until North Korea agrees to put the issue of giving up their nuclear weapons on the table. So uh, even and also I thought that the way uh, Vice President Pence acted in South Korea at the Olympics was quite rude, actually, refusing to stand when the joint North-South Korean athlete team marched in an opening ceremony uh, and skipping out on a dinner where he could have sat across from, maybe shaking hands with the uh, a guy named Kim Yong-nam, a 90-year-old technical head of state of North Korea. Uh, and then the, on the way back, they were ready to talk after snubbing them. So uh, I don't really see any change in the, in, in the foreseeable future for easing of tensions in the long term. What was Pence expecting, do you think? I mean, you know, if you're there, uh, you're, are you going to reach out? Or are you just going to sit in the seat and watch what's going on in front of you? Uh, you know, and as he's walking out the door, it's, hey, if you want to talk, we'll talk. Well, Again, opportunity missed. Why wasn't that addressed initially? Well, I think, first of all, Trump and, and Pence were not happy that North Korea was invited to participate in the Olympics. Uh, they were showing their displeasure with that. But on the way home, you, you can't, as a, a government official, say we will never talk with our adversaries. We'd rather fight. You, can, you, don't, you don't say that, right? So he had to say he would agree to talk with them. But I think he made it very clear in his behavior at the Olympics that he really is not interested in talking. And as North Korea says, oh, we're sorry, we made a mistake with all these uh, missile tests and nuclear bomb tests, and we won't do it again. Uh, North Korea's not going to do that. How does South Korea feel about the coldness of Pence? Especially if they're, in, you know, inviting the North down and looking at this as an opportunity. Um, d- does this not cement, or I shouldn't say cement, but maybe warm relations between North and South Korea more and drive a wedge between the United States? Well, the North Koreans would like to drive that wedge in there. And, and yeah. President Moon of South Korea is really trying his best to balance between the two. He doesn't want to get the Americans too unhappy because he, he relies on American support militarily and economically. But at the same time, he doesn't want to provoke North Korea into you know, starting a war. So he's trying to balance two very difficult groups of people, the North Koreans and the Americans. And he, he's pretty good at that, but it's a pretty difficult balancing act. I think he will succeed for the remainder of the Olympics. I think things are going to change back to the normal of, of insults being hurled back and forth once the Paralympics are over next month. Uh, obviously, shots on the press of, of the South Korean president shaking the hand of Kim Jong-un's sister. How significant is this? That is, actually, because she, she's, very, she's not just a sister. She's a member of the ruling Politburo. I mean, she's one of the top officials in the whole country. And she's the first member of the Kim family to visit Seoul since they were there during the Korean War. Uh, so... Um, it's, it's significant, 
But again, I, I don't see any signs that North Korea is willing to negotiate their nuclear program. In fact, we've seen signs from satellite photos that they're continuing to work on tunnels in which they test their nuclear bomb. They've been doing that as late as two weeks ago. There's some signs they're you know, digging a new tunnel. So um, until we see a sign that North Korea is willing to negotiate their nuclear weapons program and their ICBM program, I, I think shaking hands is basically meaningless. Uh, how are South Koreans viewing this and, and what their president is doing and trying to do? Obviously, they're split. <laughs> there are the people, especially the older generation, who remember the Korean War right. and are really angry at anything that implies that maybe North Korea has a legitimate government. For them seeing their president shake hands with the sister of the dictator of North Korea, it really upsets them. Uh, younger people, you know, they're, they're happy to see the North Koreans come down but the younger people could care less about unification. This is a big generation gap in South Korea today. Older people still hope that the two Koreas come together and be one country again like they were for a thousand years. Younger Koreans could care less. Hmm. And some of them didn't like the idea that the South Korean flag had to play second fiddle to this unity flag, this white flag with the blue peninsula on it with no border. Uh, they weren't happy about that. So there's definitely a, um, a, a division in the South Korean population on how to deal with the North Koreans. Uh, do South Koreans feel that North Korea has crashed their party? Uh, some of the younger South Koreans do, yes, because they wanted to have the South, the South Korean flag out there. Um, I don't know if they're going to blame the North Koreans for the fact that the joint hockey team lost uh, seven to nothing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, again, the older generation don't want to have anything to do with North Koreans until the North Koreans uh, surrender, basically. So, uh, but Moon Jae-in is still popular. He's still about 60% in popularity in the, in the public opinion polling in South Korea. Uh, so, but, but this North Korea policy, he's really has, he's, it's a difficult balancing act. You really don't want to provoke the North into further military adventures, but you also don't want to antagonize the United States. So he's got a tough situation. Did uh, President Moon have any choice but to uh, welcome them in? It's either that or you know, the threat that there might be a missile test right during the middle of the whole thing. That exactly. In fact, it's not just President Moon. The Olympic International Olympic Committee was encouraging Moon to, to accept the North Koreans because they figured that's an insurance policy. Uh, people can remember back in 1988 when uh, Seoul hosted the Summer Olympics and North Koreans blew up a plane uh, a couple of months before the Olympics yeah. started. And they didn't want that happening, happening again, right? So it was an insurance policy. And then, because the hope is that it'll turn out to be a lead to meaningful negotiations which I'm, I, I doubt will happen, but that's the hope. The meaningful the negotiations after the Olympics are over. I mean, they have invited President Moon to North Korea. That was, my next, that was my next question, Donald. Will he accept that invitation? He says, he says he'll accept it on certain conditions. He doesn't say what the conditions are. Uh, now, if he does that, he'd be the third South Korean president to visit the North. No North Korean leader has ever visited the South except for the, you know, the sister. Um, so I think... He, he would like to go to the North, and he'd like to sit down with Kim Jong-un and explain to him that uh, if North and South Korea would work together instead of uh, arguing with each other, he could really help build up the North Korean economy. He would like to be able to deliver that message personally to Kim Jong-un. But he's not going to just go up there. He has said many times he's not going to go to talk just to talk. There has to be some promises of some concrete accomplishments before he will go to the North. Uh, why did Kim Jong-un not attend, and what are the thoughts in South Korea of him holding the big military parade prior to all of this? 
I didn't see a whole lot of South Korean press on that big military parade. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe they're so used to it. North Korea does this kind of thing all the time. You know, this is, I mean, it was a little strange having them right before the Olympics. They usually hold that big parade in April. But nevertheless, we're used to North Korea trying to flex its muscles. So South Koreans kind of just yawn and say, oh, they're doing it again. As for why Kim Jong-un didn't come down, it would be very embarrassing for him if he came to the South and there were not crowds lining the streets saying, what? great leader, you're so welcome here, because that would not happen. South Koreans wouldn't do that. And he doesn't want that kind of a scene on the TV screen, so he didn't come down. Uh, what's to be gained by both of these countries participating? What's what's to be gained by South Korea? Most think that, you know, this is, South Koreans have heard all this before. They've played this game before. They're not interested. Uh, so, so what's to gain from both North and South Korea with all of this exercise? Well, first of all, they did, South South Korea did get insurance that North Korea wouldn't wouldn't try any military provocations during the game. Right. North Korea got to present a face to the world that looks friendly and peaceful. That's very in part propaganda victory. They they didn't only send the younger sister of the leader. They also had a a concert. They have a cheering squad. They have a taekwondo demonstration group. They're trying to show that they are human beings just like everybody else. All right. As far as as far as being human beings and like everybody else, uh, that goes sideways as soon as everybody sees the viral video of the cheering squad. What's your take on this, <laughs> and how is this being digested by the rest of the world? <laughs> We've seen those cheering squads before. They always pick the three hundred best-looking young women from among the families of the elite in Pyongyang and send them there. They all have they're all perfectly synchronized, right, uh, with the cheering. But North Koreans don't understand that the rest of the world sees people acting like robots. And it's not impressed. North yeah. fans think that's very impressive that people, that they can get their 300 women out there to move in exactly the same way. Well, it's exactly like watching the troops doing the goose step, right? It is exactly the same kind of thing. And North Koreans are proud of that. Yeah. They don't understand why we, why, we, why we think it's strange. Well, <laughs> it's thinking as individuals, I guess. Uh, how will that play in South Korea and the rest of the world? Does it is it making us more accepting of North Korea, or is it as the headlines are say? Is it just, are people just finding it creepy? Um, I think some people, again, South Korea is a big country with 50 million people, a lot of divided opinion. Some people, especially those like what's the concert, they say, "Oh, the North Koreans are human beings too," but other younger Koreans are saying, oh, "Look at that." They're just a bunch of robots. We don't, definitely don't want to be unified under a government like they have. And so it, it goes, works both ways in South Korea. How is Kim Jong-un selling this to the North, especially with the delegation down there, his sister down there? How, what's, the news, what's the news in North Korea like? How is he selling this back home? Well, I think he, he's, he's, they haven't announced in the North that they've invited Moon to North Korea. They haven't announced that, which is interesting. Uh, what they're saying is the world welcomed us to the Olympics, and the world loves us. That's what they say, right? We're getting all this attention from the world press. If the, if the world loves them, why, then why is everybody trying to blow them off the face of the planet like Kim Jong-un says? I know. Well, everybody loves them except the United States. Mm. There you go. <laughs> that's basically that's their argument. The United States is the eternal enemy. <laughs> so uh, your thoughts on... Um, on Ivanka going to the closing ceremonies, uh, how will this play out? Well, first of all, there won't be any North Korean officials at the closing ceremony. Closing ceremony, I believe. So she won't she won't be put in a position of pence and try to ignore the people sitting a few feet away from her. <laughs> so what? Uh, why won't? Why will North Korea not have a presence in the closing? More of a presence then? Why well, are they guessing? Well, uh, Kim Yo Jong, the sister, has gone back to the North already. 
Uh, Kim Young Nam, I believe, if he hasn't gone back already, he'll go back today. He's the, he's the man who serves this uh, chief of state, basically. I mean, there'll still be some coaches around, right? Um, and, and the cheering team will probably still be there. And the um, and uh, some of the athletes, the student Austrian athletes over there to participate in the game. But there won't be the kind of official presence uh, that Kent had to so deliberately ignore. Uh, Ivanka doesn't have to worry about that. Uh, how, how, from a world, uh, from a world leader standpoint, from the politics, uh, over and above the athletic competition, cause it seems like politics is, is as much a, a game here as, as the athletic competition is, how is the world viewing this? How is the world viewing, uh, the North Korean contingent coming to play? How is the world viewing Pence kind of snubbing them and, and, and perhaps opportunity lost? How's the rest of the, how's this playing for the rest of the world? I think, first of all, the world's reaction was ahistorical. They forgot that we've seen this movie before, and they were so excited. Oh, now the North Koreans are coming to South for the Olympics. That's going to ease the tension in the long term. Well, that's not going to happen. And then I think people also around the rest of the world just thought that Pence was rude, basically. <laughs> and he was. Uh, so I, I think that what happens when people watch uh, the North-South Korean relations, they tend to exaggerate the importance of a particular event. I think in a couple of months, We'll go back to the same situation we were in before the Olympics, which would be, you know, U.S. government calling for stricter sanctions on North Korea, North Korea saying they're not going to give up their, their nuclear weapons at all, and they're going to continue to try to test their ballistic missiles to see if they can deliver a nuclear weapon to the United States. It'll be back where we were uh, two or three months ago. And then everybody forget about the euphoria they, they, they felt during the Olympics. Uh, getting back to Mike Pence and, and him obviously giving a cold shoulder and, and then as he gets on the plane saying we should have got together, um, uh, can you hold that stiff upper lip, that, that game face, and still be cordial? And still not hand away opportunities, still take advantage of everything that's coming your way and still hold that tough exterior? I think he could have shaken the hand of Kim Jong-nam and maybe nodded a greeting to Kim Yo-jung without saying, oh, we're now willing to give up our negotiating position. I think he could have done that. But this is not the first time American government officials have done that. I'm an historian, so I know back in, in after the Korean War, there was a meeting in Geneva to negotiate a peace treaty for the Korean War. That failed, and also negotiated into the Vietnam War. And the American Secretary of State was there, and so was Zhou Enlai, the Foreign Minister of China at the time. The American Secretary of State refused to shake the hand of Zhou Enlai. So this has been done before. This is not new. So what message is the U.S. trying to send by doing this? Because clearly they could have just done nothing and not sent Pence, not, not done anything. Uh, but obviously it's no, you go there and sit there with your game face on and don't talk to anybody. What, what kind of message is the U.S. trying to send here? Well, I think if they had not sent Pence to, to the Olympics, I would have been a real snub to South Korea. And the United States wants to make it clear they still consider themselves a firm ally of South Korea. At the same time, they want the North Koreans to know that America is not about to budge on their demand that North Korea agree to discuss giving up their nukes before any kind of formal diplomatic talks begin. Do you think South Korea is angry with the U.S. for not warming up to this a little more? Uh, well, you know, here we are, we're holding the party, uh, we're trying to get everybody together, and you guys are putting on the game face. I mean, it's the Olympics. It's like going to a cocktail party. Can't we, uh, can't we let bygones be bygones for, you know, a few days and try to get beyond this and, and have some sort of discussion? No? I assume President Moon was not happy, but I also assume that he really didn't 
uh, let the Americans know of his displeasure. Because, again, he wants to have he has his balancing act. He's got to keep going, keeping the Americans happy and keeping the North Koreans in a relaxed, nonviolent mood. Uh, and so Moon obviously is happy that Pence came. He would have preferred that Pence act a little friendlier uh, to the North Koreans. But that's not going to damage the relationship between the United States and, and South Korea right now. The U.S. must have seen the advantage to having South Korea be a part of this just simply so they wouldn't wreck it uh, or, or try to distract from it. Uh, does that hold any weight or are, are they just cranky with South Korea for even going along with this in the first place? I think they they are cranky. <laughs> They're not happy that South Korea did this. We've seen this again this before when... Back in the early part of this century, Kim Dae-jung was president of South Korea, and he had something called the Sunshine Policy to try to open up economic exchanges uh, with North Korea. And then George Bush, the W, got elected president of the U.S., and he tried to sabotage Kim Dae-jung's policy. And so what you had was on the surface, Kim Dae-jung and George Bush were saying that we are allies, as tight as you can be, we're never going to break apart. And at the same time, Bush was trying to undermine Kim Dae-jung's policy towards the North. So, and, and, and Moon... Uh, is in the same party. He's in the same line as Kim Dae-jung. He comes from that line of progressive politicians in South Korea. And so he knows what the Americans did to Kim Dae-jung. So he's not surprised, I'm sure. Talk a little bit about the significance of the peninsula flag, because I can see, you know, I mean, it's an it's an interesting image, but I can see this inflaming more people than it's actually bringing together. <laughs> uh, your thoughts on the flag with the, with the peninsula on it? Well, first of all, Korea was one country for over a thousand years. Yeah. It was divided. Even when the Japanese occupied Korea from 1910 1945, they didn't divide the peninsula. It was the Americans and what we then called the Soviet Union that divided Korea in 1945. And so for many Koreans, especially the older generation, seeing a, a drawing of an undivided peninsula, is really, it makes them feel good. Young people, again, uh, they could care less. <laughs> you know, because the culture of South Korea is now so different from the culture of North Korea that mm. South Koreans often feel that North Koreans aren't even fellow Koreans anymore. Um, it almost so, seems like the objective here is to bring them both together, and you know what? Is a snowball's chance in hell of that ever happening. You're right. Uh, it, it's, again, the older, it, North Korea's policy has always been unification. And again, the older generation of South Koreans want unification, but both sides want unification on their terms. That's mm. not, not going to happen. Donald Baker has been with us, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. Donald, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good talking with you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Prime Minister being criticized by the opposition for weighing in on uh, the case of uh, a scenario where a uh, white man shot a indigenous man on his property and uh, was eventually acquitted. And uh, the prime minister has commented on the outcome of the case, saying that uh, we should do better. Uh, the federal conservatives are accusing uh, Justin Trudeau of political interference after the prime minister responded to the acquittal of a white farmer in the death of a young indigenous man, saying the criminal justice system has to do better. He said, I'm not going to comment on the process that led to this point, but I am going to say we have to come to this point uh, as a country far too many times. I know indigenous and non-indigenous Canadians are uh, alike know that we have to do better. 
So to talk more about all of this, Peter Grave is with us, political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Your thoughts. Is the Prime Minister weighing into something that uh, he should not be weighing into? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how we parse the idea of we can do better or we've come to this point too many times. <laughs> uh, so we can do better at what? At prosecuting these cases or preventing them from happening in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the issue. I mean, certainly uh, in our system where the executive, so the prime minister and the cabinet, uh, you know, are tied up in the process of the prosecution, even if, you know, most indirectly, you know, it's important that they don't comment on the outcome of judicial cases to maintain the aspect of judicial independence. So, I mean, it is important that they don't do so. And, you know, in cases such as this, they're walking a very fine line. So in one, one sense, I'm sure they could claim, well, no, we weren't actually talking about the specific case, but we're, we're seeing what the outcome of that was in terms of people uh, losing faith in the legitimacy of the, uh, of the justice system. And so, you know, there's some broader issues that this case has brought to light, and, and we should get to them. I mean, in that sense, they might be uh, able to make the case. But otherwise, there's the argument that maybe they are in various ways, you know, intimidating the judiciary or trying to influence uh, the result of an appeal. And from the point of view of the, the courts themselves and the way these branches interact, you know, the idea would be that the executive speaks to the judiciary by doing things such as appealing a case. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's... You let the Attorney General handle these things, don't you? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if it's a question of, of an appeal. So, I mean, again, the, the words are very vague. I mean, if the point was more to say, well, I mean, we have a situation where we have problems in the jury system, uh, or the way we choose juries is leading to situations where we end up with all-white juries in cases like this, and that's a problem, uh, you know, then maybe it's a bit easier to, to talk about those things. Although, again, I mean, the Prime Minister, he has the capacity to act and his cabinet has the capacity to act on a number of these files. There's not a whole lot of evidence that they've done so to this point. And so, mm. you know, it's easy for them to stand and say, oh, this is a terrible outcome. Uh, but is, isn't that not saying, though, Peter, that he disagrees with the decision? He disagrees with what the judge and jury had to say. I mean, how else do you interpret this? Well, I mean, you could interpret a situation such as this to say, well, ultimately, in this specific case, you know, uh, the jury in the room made their decision, and there's no capacity for us on the outside to say, well, was it because of, like, the systemic racism that brought them there? It was the 12 people who came to that decision in that particular case. Uh, but you could always say that cases like this, nevertheless, speak to, the, you know, the broader situation of the administration of justice in this country. Uh, and, you know, on that, maybe we do have to be concerned if we have situations where we always end up with, uh, say, all-white juries in cases such as these, you know, even in areas where, you know, the majority of the population is, in fact, indigenous. You know, how does that happen? Um, you know, again, I think one could make that case without speaking to the specifics. But, again, I think that, you know, prime ministers and ministers of justice have to realize and be careful in situations like this and frame, you know, frame their response to make it clear that they... You know, are not. Uh, it's not appropriate for them to comment on the specific case. But is he not saying that it's obvious that they got it wrong? I mean, why else would you offer an opinion? Well, I mean, I think it's it's easy to infer that from his response. But that's because he's left himself open. Well, I mean, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, the question is, what did he really mean by those very vague words? And, yeah. And uh, I mean, the conservatives are certainly saying, well. So, do we have to do more to help Indigenous people so they don't find themselves in this situation, or would, is this a case of prosecution needs to work harder actually prosecuting these cases and getting a conviction? 
Because it sounds like the latter to me. Well, I, I mean, again, in this case, too, we have to say, are we going to look at the specific case and, you know, the qu- complaints about the quality of the investigation by the RCMP and going back, you know, through the whole every step of the way? Or are there sort of more general things that come out of, I mean, clearly this case has uh, hit a nerve, right? There's a, it's really brought to the forefront a debate about uh, how is our justice system uh, dealing with cases with Indigenous peoples? And uh, is there a problem with legitimacy in the Canadian court system? Uh, I mean, those are certainly questions that prime ministers and justice ministers should be uh, dealing with and addressing. Uh, and in fact, as Canadians, we should be asking questions about why they haven't acted more if, you know, if there's this, these problems that are there. Um, so I mean, so the, is the prime minister using this as politics as opposed to saying, well, I'm the one that's got the power to change all this? Um, I, I mean, I think yes. I think it's a way to uh, deflect blame. It's a way to do theater. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, he's not alone in doing that. I mean, the Conservatives following up. I mean, is this a case of, you know, a very clear uh, case where the executive is saying, no, you know, you got it wrong and this person is really guilty? Well, maybe it's not quite as clear-cut, although they're they're trying to, to you know, play that way. And, I mean, the roles were reversed in the last parliament, uh, where, again, the Conservatives at times would take, you know, sentencing, for instance, which they claimed was you know, completely inappropriate, someone had done a heinous crime and they didn't get a sufficiently severe uh, penalty, you know, they'd bring out those specific cases again, uh, in a way, intimidating judges in their sentencing, you know, and then the Liberals kind of made great hay out of it. So, I mean, there are ways in which our politicians do that. And I think there's many cases where our politicians, you know, and in this case in particular, you know, where the, the Trudeau government is very effective at marshalling social outrage uh, but in a way that it never raises a question, well, then why aren't they doing anything about it? Uh, I mean, it seems almost more divisive than solution. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's divisive. I mean, in some ways, I think any government of any party faced with this outcome would have to come up with some sort of response. right? I mean, there's people who are very angry, who are uh, feeling that the system isn't working for them, uh, that the way uh, we're making these decisions isn't legitimate, and, I mean, I think governments do have to respond, but, again, they have to respond in a way that respects the fact that the judiciary right, is its own independent branch, that have to respect the fact that you had a jury, and a jury deliberated with the specific evidence that we as citizens didn't get a chance to see. Um, you know, so these things are, are important aspects of uh, how our judicial system is meant to work, and our politicians do have to make sure that they respect that, even when they may say more generally you know, particular cases do show problems with the way we're administering justice, right? The the way these individual people came to their decision, you know, they maybe did it properly within the context of this particular case, but, uh, you know, the, the context around which, you know, the evidence was there, jury selection was done, and so forth, uh, may raise questions. What does the Prime Minister have to do to make this right in his mind? H- how does he own this? How does he How does he change it? Well, uh, you know, once the words are said, they can't be retracted. Uh, I mean, I think the way you change it is by, uh, you know, admitting error, if error was made in in a case such as this, and then changing behavior going forward. I mean, I think there's, in a way, we've forgotten the importance of maintaining separation between the executive uh, and the courts. I mean, we have justice ministers and ministers of cabinet going to the swearing-in of the new chief justice of the Supreme Court, Uh, you know, a very symbolic uh, moment. But the idea that maybe we shouldn't have too much proximity between these actors because it questions the impartiality of the judiciary is is something we've forgotten as Canadians. And maybe this is a moment where we can remember that, yes, there's ways that uh, 
prime minister or the justice minister need to respond when there's a pressing social question like this, but they have to do so in a manner that's very careful so that we protect that independence of the judiciary. Is this any different than Trump questioning the FBI? Uh, well, it's a bit different in that, uh, you know, he's questioning the police and not the courts. Mm. Right? So, I mean, there's slightly different relationships in, in, a, in a context uh, such as that. That's less about, you know, the, the separation of the judging function from, uh, you know, the bringing of cases function uh, of different political offices. Uh, that one has more to do with, uh, you know, who has o- control over the police. How do we ensure, on the one hand, that citizens in a democracy, you know, get to have a claim over the police, but at the same time prevent the police being, you know, and becoming the cat's paw to particular politicians or executives. I mean, that's always a, it's a dicey question, as we've seen in this city with the police board and so forth. But, uh, you know, it's similar questions of process, and, and maybe we aren't as careful as we should be about thinking about those relationships and the sort of democratic stakes within them. But it's a slightly different set of questions. Peter Grab has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.